Welcome to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast, a community of love, acceptance, forgiveness, and belonging. For more information, be sure to check us out online at shorelinecc.com. Today we are starting a new series, and it's a series called Walk This Way. It's a series as we're going in. We're going to be walking through First uh, Timothy, First Timothy. And as, as I was walking this, this past week uh, going through it, uh, a, a group of friends and I, we did a hike Friday, and we, we did Mount Pilchuck. How many of you have done Mount Pilchuck, and you've been up to that place? Amazing. I highly recommend it. But as I was coming down, I passed this guy talking to two other guys, and he said something. He, he started saying, yeah, with Peter and with Paul and everything, I'm like, wait a minute, you put those two together, you know, are you talking about the Bible? I said, yeah, I am. I'm like, who are you? And he was an author, theologian, and we, we talked a little bit. But he said something about this book, 1 Timothy, that I thought was a great descriptor. He said, really, he said, 1 Timothy, this is the real letter to the church in Ephesus. And I thought, what a great descriptor of it, because it's a book that it points out to us in the way, as followers of Christ, as Christians, how we're to walk. See, being a Christian, it's not just about an event. I remember as a as a kid growing up, that was something that, you know, I thought being a Christian was just an event where you come forward and people pray for you and you're there and you're a Christian and I'm done. But how many know that that is just the beginning? Because when Jesus talked about being a Christian, he talked about someone that they laid everything down, they, they put everything to one side, they were going one way, now they're following Jesus, they're walking in the way of Jesus. And as we do that, as people did that, it so radically transformed their life that people would look at them and other people gave them the title Christian, meaning that you are like Christian. See, I can put a lot of labels on my life. But that label of being a Christ follower, it means that it's somebody that they've totally, they've revolutionized their life around God, around his word. And that's really what we're talking about because as we do this, as we walk in this way, as we follow Jesus, as we listen to his voice, we are transformed. You know, it made me think about one of my favorite verses is found in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21, and it references this. It says, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, can we say this together? This is the way. Walk in it. Now you've got another image in your mind, right? This is the way. (laughs) Walk in it. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ, that in every circumstance, in every situation, I'm listening and I'm hearing and say, God, what would you have me do in this moment right now? And God is faithful to those who would pursue him and would listen to him and would obey him. And they, they, they discover that with each act of obedience, my ear is further in tune with God. You know that the more that we obey, the more that we listen, the more that we follow, the more in tune we are to his voice. And so many times we struggle with hearing his voice because we're not walking in the way of the master, right? It's like when I was out in Granite Falls, I couldn't get the, the Mariners game. I, was, I couldn't wait to get back into reception because we were out of that bandwidth. But as soon as we come in the bandwidth and things start tuning in, step by step, path by path, we hear the voice. And that's what we're going to be talking about here as we dive into 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bibles or your app or whatever it is or to be on the screen, we're going to be starting off in 1 Timothy Chapter 1, and starting in verse 3. Can we read this together? It says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship. Everyone say stewardship. 
because I'm going to come back to that word later. I'm sorry, I invited you all to follow along, but there's a lot of words in here, so feel free to listen or you can do whatever you want to do. Stewardship from God that is by faith, another big word. Paul says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And then Paul said, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion. He said, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And then Paul says, now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been trusted. Now, that's a lot in there, isn't there? There's a lot in there, a lot to dive into. And I want to point out something before we dive into this. This all starts in verse 3. Now, for those of you who have been following Paul, if you, if you read along and you've been following his letters, so much of what he writes, he starts off by essentially, this is my paraphrase, you are all awesome. You are great. You're doing so well. I tell others about how good you are and how you're following the Lord and how you're laying it down. And he often has these paragraphs where he's just singing the praise of all these churches that he's planted. But when you look at 1 Timothy, this book to the, the Ephesians, listen to how Paul starts it off. Paul starts off by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and Jesus Christ, our hope. So the first thing he says is, God has, has called me and he's given me command for this moment. Okay, when someone comes in and they assert their position, their authority with that, uh, tune in. Tune in. Something's about to happen. And then he looks at Timothy and he says, and to Timothy. Timothy's the one bringing the letter to the church. My true child in the faith Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ our Lord. And then he starts in. This is very unusual, and here's why. Because what Paul is doing is he is underlining and he's needing to reestablish the importance of truth. See, truth is essential for walking the right way. And you may put a big duh in there, but we know that truth is easily twisted. One of the most difficult things and it's gotten more and more difficult to find, is sources of truth. We know it's the Bible, but even when something happens, I don't think there's anybody that sees a news headline or sees something across Facebook and goes, well, that must be true. We research it. Even the things that I say here, all of my notes and the things that I do, I put footnotes to because I know that if I say something or give a stat, many of you may Google it, and I encourage you to do that later. Because truth is so important. It's so essential. I mean, we know that the journey is only as good as our map. We need a map. We need to know where we're to walk. I mean, when we plan a, a, a journey, I used to love getting the Ram McNally. Anybody remember the Ram McNally, right? You get it out, you open it up, you, you highlight it, we're going to go this way, we're going to do all this, and you love going it in because the map would tell you where you're going, how far it's going to be, 
Uh, you can calculate how long it's going to take you to get there. Uh, even like with maps for hiking and stuff, we talk about terrain, right? There's a big difference in doing a three-mile hike in Kansas and doing a three-mile hike straight up Mount Pilchuck with rock scrambles and all those sorts of things. The map tells you, do I need to bring food? I look on maps for backpacking trips. Is there a water source? Do I need to bring water? How much food? How much do I want to carry? <laughs> right? All those things, these are the things that the maps tell us. And if the map is wrong, one time I followed a little map that was in like a backpacking book that was inaccurate, and I ended up going, uh, going three hours the wrong way that I had to now backtrack three hours, and now I was losing daylight, and I was exhausted. Poor Dwayne. Maps are exciting. We need a good map. And from Paul's opening paragraph, one thing is, is apparent, and that's the church in Ephesus is off track. And it's off track because as he lays this out, and as we're going to walk through, they were being influenced by the culture around them. The church in Ephesus was being influenced by the culture and the things around them. And he lays out several things. In verse 3, he talks about different doctrines and myths. And then a few verses later in verse 10, Paul then, he starts addressing sexual sins. And he addresses those who are sexually immoral, those who engage in homosexuality, and those who would enslave others. See, these are all things that were happening in the dominant culture around them and that they were happening in other, other, other re- religions. And, and, things, and one of the things that they were being influenced by was the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis. This was one of the key influencers in, in Ephesus. See, Ephesus, it was a wealthy port city. And one of the things that the city was famous for was this Temple of Artemis and the cultic worship that happened there. Who was, who was Artemis? Well, Artemis is known as Diana in the Roman world. Does that ring any bells? Right? And as you go through this, you're going to start hearing all these Wonder Woman analogies just kind of start going through, right? But Artemis was known as Diana in the Roman world and was the mythological Greek goddess Artemis, daughter of Jupiter and Latona, and the twin sister of Apollo. And she renounced this false god, all, uh, all idea of marriage, but the worship of her was associated with fertility, Uh, The worship of Artemis, it was seductive, and it included sexual practices that brought the promise of fertility, long life, sexual fulfillment, and even protection during childbirth. As a result, the temple worship was very lucrative. The temple worship, it brought a lot of wealth into the city because for reasons that we'll study later in this series, that people would flock from all over the world. It was even known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The theater alone uh, would seat over 20,000 people. And people would gain funds, not just from people flocking to the city, but there, was, there were prostitutes that would be in the temple. They would sell idols. They would have these various religious souvenirs and knickknacks that made it very wealthy. It was a source of income for the city. And in addition to the worship of Artemis, you also had all the other religions around the fringes. You had magicians, you had sorcerers, you had all these things happening. Now, can you imagine planting a new church in that context? The challenges that the Apostle Paul had, the challenges that Timothy had, the challenges that the leadership had, as, they were, as people were coming to Christ, they were coming in a context with all this baggage, I'm certain that there were people that came to Christ that they were making their living from the temple of Artemis. So in the middle of all this, how does the body of Christ, how does the church thrive in the middle of this? How does does it happen? Did you know all that was in the Bible? 
I think sometimes we think the Bible is this like sanitized document over here, but when you dig into it, it is alive, it is real, it is living, it is relevant for today. How does the body of Christ thrive in it today? I want to hone in on verses four and five because Paul, he points the way and he gets to it four verses in. Paul says, it's stewardship from God that is by faith. And then he says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, I've read the book of 1 Timothy many, many times. It's these words of instruction to a young leader to, uh, this, that he's pouring into, the spiritual son of Paul's. And I can remember, even from a young age, pastors saying, you know, read 1 Timothy. Read First and Second Timothy. It's going to pour into you and guide you. So I've read it so many times. But in this study, as I was preparing for it, the one word that just jumped off the page to me in a way that it never had before was this word Stewardship. See, Paul, he used a very intentional word. And when I dove into it, as as I began to, to study this and to pull this out, we see that biblically, stewardship is the job that is given to us by God. See, God can do anything he wants, creator of the universe, but he made you and he chooses to flow through you, all those that would devote their hearts to him. This is how God works. This, this is how he made us. He made us as stewards because stewardship is a job that is given to us by God. And the first time that the word steward shows up is in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Remember that? What did, he made them stewards over the Garden of Eden, over all the animals, over everything that was happening. God made them stewards. And so here, Paul, is, he's being extremely clear to Timothy, and he's encouraging people towards this word stewardship. When you, when you dive into the word a little further, you find out that there are three key aspects to this word stewardship. That biblically, as we look at stewardship, we see that it entails three key things. The first one is stewardship is a job. But then secondly, stewardship involves a plan. And then stewardship involves management. So God has called us all to be stewards And as a part of that, that means there's a job involved, there's a plan involved, and there's management involved. So let's start with that first one. First of all, job. Job means you've been given responsibility. You have a job to do. Every job has things you enjoy, and every job has things not so much. Right? I couldn't wait to install my new kitchen sink until I had to clean all the dishes that would fill it. (laughs) There's stuff to do. But I thank God for it. See, every Christian has a responsibility to uh, to the local church. This is what he's talking about here. Every Christian has a responsibility to the local church to be a good steward. A good steward. See, Christianity does not exist separate from the local church. Jesus, he lived, he died, and he rose again for the body of Christ, both individually as the members, but all the members coming together collectively as the body of Christ. We know through scripture and we know through history, we know through personal stories that we don't survive without the body of Christ. We were made to be connected. And without the body of Christ and the culture that we're in, you you will not survive. We need each other. I need you. 
I need all of y'all. I'm not even Southern, and I'll say Southern things. See, we are transformed as we say yes to the job that God has for us. And just like there are good things and there are tough things, one of the things the body of Christ does is the body of Christ protects me from me. Because when I get off, people go, hey, Dwayne, I need to take it for coffee. Or I need to speak into this. Or I need to do that. We need, because left to our own, right? I mean, we, we see this. We, we, we know these things. One of the things that the organization, that the body of Christ does, that it does, when it is functioning as a healthy organization, the body of Christ, it protects it from itself. All right? You may be an ear, but if your ear is itchy, you need a finger. Isn't that a powerful analogy, right? We need each other. If you're hungry, you need a hand to bring you food. You need feet to walk there. You need all these things that are there. We need each other. And there's a job that we have, so stewardship means we have a job. But stewardship also has a plan. See, every assignment, every job needs to have a plan. So many people have said this. A goal without a plan is just a what? A wish, (laughs) right? You go in for a bank loan, you go in for a business loan, you go in for anything like that where you want to build something, they want to see your business plan. If you don't have no business plan, you don't have no loan. Because they want to see what is your plan? How do you see this happening? And Jesus, he emphasized this because, yes, we're led by the Spirit, and the Spirit of God leads us and guides us, but we also have this accompanying principle that that he leads us in. In Luke 14, Jesus said, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Planning is very important to God. When you look at creation, one of the uh, examples, one of the evidences that we have that God exists is because when you look at creation, scientists, I've known atheists that have looked at creation and said, I cannot deny that there is a designer behind this. It is proven as an example, and even the Word of God says that we are without excuse because creation testifies. There's a creator to it. At every level, the level of engineering, the precision is astounding when you dive into it. See, God has a, he has a plan for your life. He has a job for you and for the body of Christ. And we need to find that, discover that, see that, read that, work together to achieve that. So stewardship, it means that you've got a job as a child of God. It means that there's a plan for your life. There's a plan for us as a body of Christ. But it also involves management. Management. And management is probably one of the least exciting words that people have when it comes to working. I remember I had a friend years ago, and he had a job. He was a manager of a fast food restaurant, and he came to me and said, Pastor Duane, the toughest job I've ever had, the toughest job I'll ever have is to be a manager of a fast food restaurant. He said, do you know how hard it is to motivate people to show up for minimum wage, to flip burgers, and to be annoyed by customers that are angry at them because they didn't get the cheese right? It's tough. And as a manager, when... When those people didn't show up, guess who has to show up? The manager. I have a lot of respect. When I go to fast food restaurants and I see the manager, I'm like, I got a lot of respect for you. It's a tough job. Thank you so much. I love my Chick-fil-A. I love it. I'm not kidding. But management, this is the administration of the plan because you can have a job title, you can have a thing on the door, you can have a plan, you can have strategies that you roll it to your board, but if there's no management, the plan will not happen. This is how we execute it. And management is essential in being good stewards because without the managed execution of a plan, the plan is worthless. It is dead. Or to quote James 2.20, faith without works is dead. It's this works that comes out where 
we hear from God. God gives us a plan, but then we have to roll it out. Abraham, Moses, Joe, I mean, look at all of these great managers, the way that they rolled it out. The apostle Paul had a plan, the way that he worked it out. Gyms have a great plan for getting you in shape. Financial advisors have a great plan for you getting your finances in order. Educators, universities have a great plan for you getting ready for that career that God has called you to. But none of that takes place without good management. Without good management. See, God has a plan for you that will blow your mind. And Paul said this three chapters later to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 3.20. He said, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can even ask or imagine. But then in Ephesians 3.20, he goes on to say that this plan is only achieved according to his power that is at work within us. See, I can do all the sermons I want from my chair at home, but until I get up out of that chair and start moving towards it, Nothing's going to happen, right? Steering wheels only work on cars that are moving. <laughs> downhill skis only work when you're going downhill. See, God has called us. He's given us a job. He's given us a plan. And he's called us to be effective managers of this. This is what stewardship is all about. And I believe that's one of the, one of the, one of the key things that has been missing from the body of Christ because oftentimes churches become a place that we go to that we attend. The same way that we go and see the Mariners win, right? We show up, how's the hot dogs? How's the whatever it is that you want to get into? That's not what church is. Go to the Mariners. By all means, go to the, support the Kraken this year. Even though they may not make the playoffs. But we, right? That's not what stewardship is. Stewardship is saying it's getting involved, it's coming up. The body of Christ is not a bunch of spectators. It's a bunch of people that come and say, God's got a call in my life. There's a plan that's laid out, and I'm going to effectively step in, and I'm going to be, even though it's going to be uncomfortable, I'm going to stay in it. When I was a kid growing up, I never heard someone say, I'm leaving because I don't like the music, or I'm leaving because of this, or I'm leaving because of that. If there's some theology things, just they got off. But it was tough at times to get in. But it was people that were committed that were there no matter what. Those are the churches that grow. Those are the churches that excel. Those are the churches that become a faithful witness in the community when they say, this is the body of Christ. As long as it preaches the word of God faithfully, and Pastor Dwayne throws in a couple of good jokes every now and again, I'm going to stay there. I was joking about the jokes. Right, I'm here. One of the things I love, I said this morning, I said, man, you know, I love new people, all the new people. I'm so glad that you're here. It is life-giving. It is refreshing. It's awesome. And I also love people who've been here for 20, 10, 30, 40 years. They walk in, and it fills my heart with something special because I'm like, they stayed here. They stayed here when it was tough. They stayed here when things were bursting, and they stayed here when things were thin. They stayed in it, and they committed because they want to see Shoreline to know the love of God right here and right now. It, you have no idea how much it encourages the pastor, how much it encourages me, how much it encouraged Bob before me, how much it encouraged Pastor Bob, I mean, Pastor Kevin before me, Pastor George Smith, a wonderful great Canadian before me, before him. Pastor, Le I can go all the way back, Pastor Les, Pastor Berkeley, 
Every pastor will say the same thing. They, we need to see new people that are coming in, that are coming alive in Christ for the life that it brings. But when there are people that are like, no matter what, pastor, you preach the word of the Lord, I'm here, I'm in, I'm, they're stewards. There are people that have been fixing our leaky roofs around here that it's not the first time they fixed a leaky roof around here. <laughs> Stewardship. And here's the thing, when people step into that environment, it encourages them to go, man, I need to use my skills for the Lord. I need to be engaged here. I need, there's something going on here. Stewardship excites me because I see the life change that takes place. I see the foundation that it builds. And Paul is speaking to this church in the middle of a highly sexualized, a corrupt environment with cultic worship where people flock from all over the world. And he's saying, we need to pay attention to the stewardship word. We need to dig in. We need to recognize we've been called by God. There's a plan that takes place. And we need to effectively commit to it and walk out and see the body of Christ come alive because people flock from all over the world. And they're coming here for Diana. They're coming here for all the corrupt destroying things, and we're going to shine the light of Christ and love them and show them the way of Jesus. But stewardship is difficult. So how do we walk this way? How do we walk this way? Well, Paul goes on. Again, this is verse 5, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul's laying it out, and he's saying we walk this way by having love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. He lays these three things out. How do we walk this way? The first thing that he leads into is the word love. And and again, you may say, why do we keep talking about love? Because we're so confused. Almost every sermon, it's, it's hard to preach a sermon without talking about this. Because I'm reminded of this every day, that if I'm to love the way that Jesus has called me to love, the way that he's called me to love as a pastor, as a dad, as a husband, as a friend, as someone who's standing in line waiting for their breakfast taco downtown Edmonds, whoever that person is, I need to be reminded of what love looks like because love is sacrificial. Love costs me something. Love means that as I walk this out, I'm experiencing it fully in community. It's sacrificial and this kind of love, it's experiencing community because we're rubbing against one another. We're, we're, we're being shaped by one another. We're being, we're being refined by one another. This is the whole meaning of that because love will always sharpen you, like, just like the scalpel of, of the great physician. One of those loving things that a physician can do is to take the scalpel out and cut out something that needs to be cut out, even though it's painful, even though it will hurt you, even though there's a recovery. Love demands that things be made Right? See, one of the reasons why Paul fought for the church and one of the reasons why Jesus died for the church is because the church is essential in protecting us from one of the greatest enemies, which is ourself. I'm often my greatest enemy. And again, just to repeat something I said earlier, the body of Christ does so much in shaping my life. There are people in this room that have to come and they've, they've, they've had to say some difficult, hard things to me. But when someone says it in love... I've experienced both. I've experienced people that couldn't wait to come up and just, man, I've been waiting my whole life for this moment, or at least, at least uh, all week. <laughs> no one's here from Newfoundland, so that's where I, I grew up and was raised. And they use it as a weapon. And, and we all have. We've all experienced those things. But then I've experienced someone who loves me, and they want the best for me, and they sit down with me. And they go, 
I prayed about this. I think I need to say something to you. It's, it's different, isn't it? Right? It's different, isn't it? Even from a dad. Right? When I walk in and go, no one's washing the dishes and no one's, you know, who left my coffee grinder out? <laughs> That's very different. And hey, we're going to do barista training today, boys and girls, and we're going to lay this out. Love is, it makes everything, everything align with the body of Christ and with what Jesus is doing. It brings the greatest healing. And then the Apostle Paul, he goes on and he says, so how do we love like this? It's with love, it's sacrificial love, it costs you. But how do we love with this? He says, this, this type of love, it only happens from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, we can do very terrible, selfish things and say it's all because of love. <laughs> it's all because of love. But Paul is looking to Timothy and he's saying, Timothy, this type of love, it only comes from a heart that is pure. A heart that is pure. Pure, is a, that's a big word, isn't it? Right? It made me think of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall what? See God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, every great man and woman of God prays for this. They, they pray for that purity. See, pure means that it is without impurities, that there's only one thing present. Pure in heart means it's God and it's God alone, which we can say it, we can sing it, we can write it, I can preach it, but living it is very, very, very difficult. Because things that are 100% pure, whatever they are, they're going to cost you. They're going to cost you. I mean, you notice this, right? When you go through your grocery store, whatever it is, have you ever accidentally picked up honey sauce instead of pure honey? Have you ever accidentally picked up maple sauce instead of maple syrup? Like, man, what a great deal. As a Canadian, I'm very offended by that. It's very different, isn't it? And I'll even say that as you age and as you get older and you develop all, all, all these things, even when you do that, you're like, Ooh, it feels wrong. <laughs> as a kid, I just lathered, I didn't care what I ate. See, there's a difference between gold-plated and solid gold. There's a cost difference. And you can tell it. If something costs cheaper, you've got to go, why is that? Why does 100% pure cost more? Because it takes more work. There's more pain involved. See, purity has a cost. None of us are pure on our own. None of us are pure on our own. We were all born into sin. Now, I don't do this, but I had a friend once with every new baby that would come in, he would say, just one, one more new sinner born in the world. <laughs> I, I, I don't do that at baby dedications, by the way. But there is truth. There's truth in that. We are born because of the fallenness of our state, because of who we are, we are all born into sin. When they asked Jesus who's good, Jesus said there's only one good. Only God is good. This is the state of fallen, broken humanity. And when Paul talks about a pure heart, he's talking about a process that refines us. So when he's saying pure, that's not just a drop and just move on and forget it. He'll come back to it later. But what he's referencing, he's referencing this process, this, this refining process that purifies us. And this process is known as the refiner's fire. I used to sing it at every altar call back in the 90s and early 2000s. Refiner's fire. See, he's talking about the process that it purifies us. 
It's the process of, because uh, the, the process of purity is one of refinement, and it is a brutal and it's a hostile environment. Malachi talks about this, First Peter talks about this, Zechariah talks about it. Because the, the refiner's fire is the only way to burn away the impurities. Because these impurities, these are the things that devalue the metal, these are the things that weaken the metal, and they compromise its integrity. But we've discovered that as, me, as metal is heated up, the impurities rise to the top, and they are scooped and thrown away, and what is left is pure. And it's a brutal process, but it's one that's even necessary. Even those that do that, I mean, they're protected. They got shields, they got gloves, they got stuff all over them because even getting near something that hot could damage the one who's trying to do the purifying. And unfortunately, this cost of refining, this is where we're tempted to jump out. Right? This is where we're tempted. It's too much, Lord. And I'm often amazed at how I've seen people that just before, just before they were there, they jump out. They were right there. Things were getting ready to open. Because here's the thing that we know to be true. Satan will always tempt you the most. He will always attack you the greatest just before your moment of victory. And he will try to confuse you that there's no hope for you. It's done. Look how far you've come. Look how long you've been in this fire. Look how long you've been working through. Look how much you've prayed. Where is your God? And the reality is the longer that voice shouts, the more you need to lean in. You must be scared because something great's about to happen. Some breakthrough is about to happen. So my encouragement, why words to you today, if you're feeling it and you're going, God, where are you? Stay in that refining process. Allow the Lord to do his work in you because if you jump out, you will forfeit. But if you will stay in, victory is ahead of you. It's a promise of the Lord. It may not look like what you thought it would look like. It may not come when you wanted it to come, but it will be there, whatever it is. And however it is, as we trust the Lord. This is the Lord of the God that we serve. This is why all the disciples, when you look at the disciples, they continually encouraged those that they were discipling to stay in the process. First Peter says, be glad. There's wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. He says, it is, being, it is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when, the, when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the word. And then James says, brothers, sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider an opportunity for great joy. Say, hallelujah, I'm suffering today. Why? Here's why. He said, because you'll know your faith is tested. When your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Who needs endurance? I need endurance. We need endurance. We need to be willing to stay in it. And he says in here, he says, and your, he says your endurance has a chance to grow. So he says, let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect, you will be complete, and you will need nothing. This is the word of the Lord. We need this refining. We need this refining in our life because we know that even when we stay in God's hands and even when things come along, when things happen to us that were not your fault, you got hit by a car, you got fired from work, you got whatever those things are, you got a sickness, 
all these things that happen because we're in a broken, we're in a fallen world. It's not the Garden of Eden anymore, but we know that as we stay in the Lord's hands, we echo this response from Joseph that he said in, verse, in chapter 50, verse 20 of Genesis. Joseph said, what the enemy meant for harm, God will turn into good. Joseph went through a lot tougher times than I did. My brothers never sold me off into slavery. My brothers never put me in a pit. I was never falsely accused and put in jail. And I hope not to. But Joseph, in the middle of it, faithful to God, faithful to the sovereignty of God, Job, in the middle of his circumstances, in the middle of everything, trust a sovereign God, trust a loving God. See, here's a truth as we wrap this up and as the team comes up. We need to recognize that when we are walking with God, no one can hurt you. They can only refine you. And that's a big difference, isn't it? Has anybody been hurt before? Yeah. But things turn around in my life when I get on my knees and I say, God, I bring my hurt to you. And I encourage you even now, even now, maybe there's a hurt, maybe there's a refining process in your life. I invite you to close your eyes just to block everything out and just to say, God, I bring my hurt to you today. God, I bring my disappointment to you today. I bring you the things that were done to me by other people. And God, I bring you to you the things that I've done to myself. Sometimes I'm hurt because I made bad decisions. Sometimes I'm hurt because I did things that were wrong. But Lord, I know that in the middle of that, as I turn to you, as I lay it before you, as I confess, as I give it to you, that all those things that the enemy is surrounding, he's roaming like a lion to destroy me. When I give them to you, you take the things that were meant to kill me and you work them out for my good, amen? Would you just do that now? Just, just give it to the Lord. Lord, we bring to you our hurts, we bring to you our habits, we bring to you our hangouts, we bring everything that we have. Just like Joseph did, just like Job did, just like Daniel did, just like all the disciples did. Jesus modeled this. Not my will, but your will be done. Lord, we know that as we do this, it turns from a hurt to a refiner's fire, something you sharpen in us, something you strengthen in us, something you mobilize us in, something that you use for your glory. We give it to you in your name. We stay yoked to you, O Lord. You know, just like James says, faith without works is dead. There's so much here in this refining, so much, so much that, I'm, that the Lord continues to pour in my heart and work through. But transformation demands a response. Find some way to respond. The Lord's given you all the faith you need. You have enough to move a mountain through the power of God in your life but you need to walk to it. You need to put feet to it. Lead the way and be invulnerable. 
help me. I have this. Maybe you're in the fire right now. You need someone to surround you in prayer because you don't know how long you're going to be in that refining fire, but God does. And as you're in that fire, ask that question, what needs to be refined in me? All we want is you, Lord. All we want is you. We forsake all things. We deny all things but Jesus. And we lift our eyes to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, casting aside every hindrance, every weight. We pursue you, oh God. Lord, let this word come alive. Lord, as we walk from this place today, Lord, that we know this is where it's tested. Let your word come alive in us. Holy Spirit, remind us of things we need to be reminded of. Encourage us when we're in that refining fire to not give up, but to recognize you've called us as stewards. You've given us a job. You've, you're giving us a plan, and you've called us to effectively walk it out. Help us, Lord. And I want to pray for this Shoreline Community Church of the Body of Christ. Lord, we would not grow weary in well-doing. We would not lose hope. But, God, that we would be effective salt and light to our workplace, to our families, to this community, wherever we are. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Let's say this together. This is our benediction. Let's proclaim this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Now go and live for Jesus. Love you all. God bless. God bless.